So mm-hmm. this is a conversation with Lisa Dale Miller. Hi, Lisa. Um, Hi. So, so uh, how did you get to do what you're doing? In stages. Um, but being a psychotherapist is actually a second career for me. Mm-hmm. So I spent over 20 years as a internationally exhibited visual artist. Um, that was my primary career. But in 2000, I was asked to go to Kosovo right when the war ended and to do a drumming project with the kids in the worst burned-out villages yeah. in Kosovo. I spent several months every day going out to the villages with these drums that um, were what they didn't know and I didn't know is the indigenous drums of the Albanian Kosovars. And actually the girls and the women are the drummers and the boys and the men dance. So I was bringing back their culture, which, of course, for the children was activating tremendous amounts of trauma because these were villages where there had been massacres, uh, where villagers had left and lived in the woods for a year and a half. I mean, it just it was terrible trauma. Yeah, yeah. And I was not a psychotherapeutic professional, And they refused to send one out with me. So I, I ended up spending several months doing what ostensibly was music therapy. And when I came back to the States, because my artwork had always been interactive, had always been interested in the mind, um, and I thought, well, maybe I should switch my careers here and yeah. start working with people. So and I've been a... a Buddhist and yogic meditation practitioner for 40 years now. So that started when I was a teenager. And so the, the overlay of Buddhist psychology with modern clinical psychology was sort of a natural thing for me. Uh, and not something I needed to learn from a clinical perspective because I had a depth of training and knowledge in the Buddhist teachings. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah, yeah. So, so uh, in a way, uh, in Kosovo, you encountered an extreme form of uh, the, the suffering, dissatisfaction, the, the forms of, you know, the extreme form of that, of life. And, yeah. And, um, and so um, you went on to study psychotherapy, and there's a, a link between your interest in Buddhism and the practice of Buddhism and psychotherapy? Well, at the time that I entered graduate school, you know, mindfulness was just beginning to gain steam from a clinical perspective. So I had already had so much of this training um, that it was a no-brainer for me to put the two together and to do it in a way that was deepened in rather than this surfacy sort of mindless brand of mindfulness. Yeah. that we tend to see in Western psychology and also the corporatization of mindfulness. And we don't have to go there, but it's rampant. No, but there's something we very nice. There's something that feels very nice about, um, you know, talking about mindless mindfulness. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, and, a, and a very real desire on your part 
um, to not go into the uh, facile, um, just surface thing about it. So you also yeah. you're, you're, you're an SE practitioner, and maybe I am. we can explore a bit of how you know you see the integration of um, your interest of mindfulness and uh, the SE approach. You know, unfortunately, it took me several more years to be able to train in SE than I wanted, uh, partly because I was already speaking at clinical conferences on mindfulness interventions, and I didn't have the time. But I could I could see that the skills that I had were not being applied as effectively as they could be applied. And SE really is a... I would say the optimal framework within which mindfulness skills can be applied and practiced by a patient. There really is nothing better than SE, and partly that's because of the working at the nervous system level. Even in my book, I'm very blatant about the fact that any psychotherapeutic professional these days who thinks they're only working with the mind is really barking up the wrong tree because consciousness is embodied, our trauma is embodied, the, you know, thinking, cognizing. This is not just about neurons. It's a full-body process. And um, anybody who doubts that, I encourage them to read the works of Alva Noe or to read um, Evan Thompson's books. I mean, these are philosophers who are also work in the cognitive sciences who have been... Um, working at the, at the edges and now the center of what is embodied consciousness, yeah. which I think is where all of these disciplines are going. And there really is nothing like SE. In my mind, there's nothing like SE. I think it is the ultimate trauma therapy, um, largely because it does not re-traumatize anyone and also because it's direct. The person is actually working on their own nervous system. Mm-hmm. In a sense, there really is no intermediary. Yeah, yeah. So the the therapist is a facilitator in that. Yeah, process. there's nobody doing something to the person, yeah. so that they they do not have their complete capacity to be able to work their own trauma in the moment. And I think you and I would both agree because I know pod practice is something that you offer to people. I think we would both agree that. Offering skills to patients in the, for in the moment is really where it's at. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so you were defining that uh, you know that meeting point um, as um, you know the attention, the focus on embodied consciousness. Um, yes. So, um, do you want to talk a little bit more about, in a way, um, how you can see a situation? You know, you have your perspective as a as a therapist, and especially as an SE therapist. Uh, you have your lifelong practice of uh, Buddhist, and 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 you think of Buddhist as an experimental research approach, moment by moment. So, in a way, as you're in a clinical situation and you're facing a client, um, is there kind of a shift from one mind to another, from one perspective to another? In what way do the two approaches feed into each other? This is such a fabulous question. Um, I recently did the Eye of the Needle training with Peter, which you may have done, 
And what I found fascinating about that training, even though the purpose of it is anesthesia trauma, in fact, this is actually the work that any psychotherapist has to do with somebody who has a major anxiety disorder of any kind. And uh, I think Peter was fairly clear about that, but uh, it was amazing to watch him do the kind of work that I find myself doing all the time, which is this very tightly titrated work of getting someone to be able to recognize what is actually going on in their mind, what their mind is actually conjuring up, the, con the mental construction, which is the ultimate um, insight, I think, of Buddhist psychology, which is that the mind will construct its own reality and, and more often than not, that reality is false. Yeah. That the actuality experience as it's arising is not the same as the narrative with which most people listen to and are focused on in their daily lives as they go through their experience. So the skills of Buddhist psychology, particularly uh, the skills that I am focusing on and offering in my book for clinicians, is this capacity to recognize the truth of emptiness in the moment, that there is a constructive way in which the mind creates reality for us, which is not actually reflective of the way experience is actually showing up. When patients have this direct knowing, it frees them to be able to drop directly into experience, which, as you and I both know, is the body yeah. and the senses. Yeah. And in Buddhism, mind is actually the sixth sense base, all of the material that we create, mm -hmm. all the thoughts, emotions, mm -hmm. this is just more material, it's more phenomenal material. So my approach in both of these disciplines um, is a phenomenological approach. It's yeah. not a ventative approach in any way, shape, or form. And I believe that that's why Etsy is such a beautiful compliment, because it's not constructive. It's phenomenological. Yeah. But so, you know, what we're talking about is that sense of um, um, the mind is, is a filter, uh, you know, that gives us a distorted view of reality. And um, it's, um, you know, we become aware of our own filters and distortions, and then are able to to see more of present reality. Um, and what you're describing is um, it's not something. While it is a you know it is about seeing how we our mind constructs reality, um, it's not a heady approach. It's not about just talking about it there is a quality to the embodied experience that's coming in. So is that, you know, uh, how SE comes in? Actually, I would say that in my work, as I said, SE is a framework and it's a structure within which to allow the work to unfold. But the work itself, there's no difference between what Buddhist psychology would prescribe and what SE skills themselves. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The framework and the structure within which an SEP works with someone is particular to SE. 
But the actual doing of it and what the patient is doing, I would say there's very little difference. Yeah. This is my experience. There's very little difference. Yeah. The other thing that I would say is that um, the beauty of the methodologies that you and I are discussing right now is they are direct approaches. And it's not like CBT. The difference between this and cognitive behavioral therapy is cognitive behavioral therapy will point to the discrepancy. It'll point to the distortion. And then what it recommends is just another, what I would say, another distortion. The alternative thought is just another construction. That's where CBT goes wrong. Yeah. Another alternative construction is never going to allow the nervous system to actually open and heal itself the way actual reality does. Yeah, yeah. And this is thing, I had a conversation. You, you may agree or disagree with me on this. It'll be interesting. I had a conversation with a colleague on Saturday evening at dinner who um, mentioned positive psychology, and I said I was not a big proponent of such a thing because, in fact, to me, when one recognizes the nature of the way things actually are in their sexuality, um, often that is including all the things most people miss, which positive psychology is trying to get them to create. It's already there. Mm-hmm. You don't actually have to do positive thinking because the reality of our situation is already much better than the way our minds are generally constructing for us. Yeah. yeah. Because we tend to construct in the negative. And I, and I would say also that, um, uh, you know, that if you go into positive psychology, uh, there is a part where it can be meant to construe something else and you're back into what you were talking about, the uh, the basic flaw of cognitive behavioral therapy is to yeah. stay at the level of thought. And um, and it's not just a question, you know, to 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 um, you know shift a little bit what you were saying. It's not just a question of just adding another thought, but of still processing at the level of thought, yes. instead of going into the expanded, uh, you know, bigger mind and exploring also the awareness of the body and and uh, emotions and that larger way of perceiving. Uh, instead of trying to resolve everything simply at the level of thought. So shall I give a practical example? You you are going to give a practical example? Uh, why not? Great. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So, um, I had somebody who worked for two years in cognitive behavioral therapy with a very serious anxiety disorder, very, very serious, and completely diluted, I must say, because there was no basis in reality for the anxiety at all. And um, this person came to see me, recommended by someone, and it turned out this person had very traumatic attachment trauma at a very young age. The cognitive behavioral therapist may have known this, but it probably didn't mean much to them. Those of us in the FE world will know <laughs> this sets up the nervous system for uh, an eventual incapacity to, at some point in a person's life, hold up the defense mechanisms that have probably been keeping them from doing a pretty good job in their life, which is exactly what happened to this person. So um, part of the message 
manifestation for this person and for many people with anxiety disorders is stomach difficulty. And the stomach difficulty for these patients often turns into a tremendous amount of dread and fear about the stomach problem. So um, what I did with this person, probably in our second session, when they came in and had the manifestation of a stomach issue, was I just sort of invited them. Instead of doing your stomach, your stomach problem, it's just a matter of your anxiety. If you didn't have the anxiety, you wouldn't have, you know, instead of going there, I said, well, okay, I'll tell you what. How about if we just go see exactly what's showing up in your stomach? The, just the real sensations. You just tell me what's really there. And of course, immediately, when the person turned their open awareness with curiosity, I might add, at least a little curiosity, because the dread was there. The first thing they noticed was the constructive story about it. That it shows up immediately, and we're right out of there. But with this sort of encouragement of, well, yeah, that's there, just notice that. Now let's just go see what the body's actually doing. Of course, once the person was able to do that, the sensations, they dissolved immediately, because that's the nature of experience. Yeah. Yeah. If there isn't a mind driving phenomena like that, it just dissolves. The body is actually able to do what a body normally does, which is not have that kind of yeah, yeah. Uh, pain and distress, I think. So and this is this was so freeing to this individual. I mean it's, it's a complete mind opening for someone like that because they are so imprisoned in a particular way of thinking about their body and their mind. So that's a beautiful example on at least a couple of levels. Um, one level is obviously the um, direct experience of this person of what happened when paying attention there. Yes. Um, and I think on another level, in a, you know, in a training effect, in a, you know, over time by, paying, by doing this kind of thing, uh, it's a perfect way to explain to people, you know, the difference between paying attention to constructed reality and paying attention to direct experience. Because if you read a book and you read about direct reality, it feels like all of us, especially those of us who has a little bit of intelligence, a little bit of culture, would be able to dismiss that. However, uh, with the experience of suffering with, you know, a physical symptom uh, or something that's bothersome, we tend to then go back to the default mode, which is to think about it. And you're yeah. very nicely explaining of how, with the SE approach, you're really training people, even in those circumstances, giving them the support and the guidance uh, to focus on the direct experience. So, from that point, because Buddhist psychology is interested in liberation from suffering, mm -hmm. what I do now, the person has had the actual experience. They've had it directly. They can't tell me that this is not going to happen because it just happened. So from that point where I go with them is the, the training in the way things actually are. <laughs> that the mind construction is empty of any inherent phenomenological reality that 
all phenomena are impermanent. They come and go. And that the actual refuge from suffering is direct experience as it arises, exists, and passes away. And what happens in this frame now is the person is actually awakening from a delusion, a primordial delusion that we carry in our nervous systems because we're born in human bodies about the way things actually are. So the, the psychotherapy at that point becomes a psychotherapy of liberation. Yeah, yeah. And so, it can be applied locally almost to anything. So a psychotherapy of, of liberation um, is a psychotherapy of uh, retraining the mind, of giving people the experience in the sessions, um, helping people uh, notice the difference. So I would say it is not a retraining of mind. I would say it is an opening of the awakened mind heart. That is what I would say. Because essentially we already have awareness. Mm -hmm. We already have this liberative phenomena in us. It's there every moment. We may not be aware that we have the platform for this. And that platform is not just mental. That platform is a deepening into the existential condition of being a human being. And one of the things that some of us now are trying very hard to do is to reunite what has turned into a sterilized version of mindfulness and compassion practice with the wisdom tradition and the ethical conduct tradition of Buddhist psychology. They cannot be separated. Otherwise, essentially, people won't be liberated. It's just another—it's just another technique for symptom reduction. And I, frankly, am not interested in symptom reduction. I'm not interested in stress reduction. I'm interested in liberation from suffering. Period. Yeah. A person cannot do that unless they know the truth of their own existence. Yeah. Yeah. Which is to awaken. So, 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 not staying at the surface. The sense of going into. Um, you know, what matters. Well, what I'm talking about is the training in selflessness, which is a training in recognizing self-cherishing, this grasping at a narrative about oneself that is wholly false. Mm -hmm. Often quite narcissistic, whether that's negative narcissism or positive narcissism that eventually gets in the way of our being able to meet our life with a kind of openness and grace mm -hmm. that leads to liberation from suffering. Yeah, yeah. And, and so I, think, I think one more thing is that um, I would join James Hellman, um, who, toward the end of his life, began to really... Um, write openly about how psychology, Western psychology, has completely missed the boat on the collective healing, that its insistence on individual healing has been a detriment to us societally, that it really hasn't focused on collective awakening and collective healing. And I do think that Buddhist psychology, due to its 
commitment to um, awakening oneself for the awakening of all other beings. And um, the many compassion practices, which I do offer patients that open the heart to a quality of, of humility, generosity, and selflessness, is very important yeah. for people who are suffering, particularly from depression, anxiety, and these kinds of things. So, so that's a very important part that you're adding, because in a way, a few minutes earlier, you were talking about something. You say, uh, you know, the goal is to help uh, people meet life with openness and grace. And uh, that yes. statement is one that probably most psychotherapists would agree on, that uh, would yes, say, no, I don't want just to do symptom reduction. I want to do that. Uh, yes. And so that's a nice way of, in a way, reframing there. But the other piece that you're adding is to say it's going to be hard to really meet life with openness and grace if actually you don't open up to the idea that you're more than just yourself and that you live in a context where there's other human beings and that uh, in order to find openness and grace, there's going to be some opening to that larger context. Yes, we have a tremendous amount of neurobiological research that shows that people are actually happier when they don't think about themselves, <laughs> when they're not self-absorbed, when they're actually engaged in um, generosity and activities that have to do with helping others. Yeah. Um, and, and, and so, parts so, of the brain that light up <laughs> for happiness, even hedonic happiness. Of course, I'm discussing more of a eudaimonic kind of happiness, a enduring mm -hmm genuine happiness rather than just the happiness that most of those happiness books are not about eudaimonic happiness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're about momentary fleeting pleasure, which really, in the end, does not bring anybody happiness. Yeah, yeah, more deeply satisfying as opposed to instant gratification or... Um, yeah. But but the, the part that's interesting, uh, you know, again, even SE therapy... Uh, that um, we could be thinking that our role is, of course, not just symptom reduction. We want to go into, you know, something deeper, but is not just in a way to deal with reactivity um, and, uh, but, you know, the, uh, it's to actually help people find, you know, in a way, having dealt with this, launch into uh, another stage of, uh, finding that deeper happiness. Right on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the truth is, and it's a sad truth, I mean, if a person has spent so many years suffering from very traumatic experience, they often be become self-absorbed in the narrative about themselves as a traumatized person. So even when a person begins to feel less trapped in some of the trauma, the narrative about me as a trauma victim is often the last thing that goes. Yeah. yeah. And I think Buddhist psychology is very profoundly useful for being able to lighten the grip on that kind of story because Buddhism essentially shows how that is just a story. Yeah, but so in the way you're well, saying it, there's a way to kind of shift back, and I'm trying to, again, shift back to, to find the uh, convergence 
and the, mm-hmm. the way in which it would fit is that what you're saying is that, um, you know, if you've spent a sizable part of your life in trauma and you internalize the trauma story as the story of your life and your sense of self, you may in a way feel like you've gotten beyond the trauma, but that story is still going to be there. And so yeah. that sense of the, the small self, the limited self that comes from it, if you take a larger perspective, is actually an after effect of trauma. And uh, part of the leftover of it, and so from that point of view, when uh, you have that model of the potential of what a human being can be, uh, when you notice that, you can feel like the cure is not, you know, fully complete. And it extends into reaching the potential, which is the opening up, and that, you know, that more, that closer part is related to fear and is related to trauma, and the opening up is related to how much we can open up to our potential when safety is there. Am I following um, you? I would say that in the doing of it, you are exactly correct. I think what I am pointing to is more in a person's life, in the way that they actually envision who they are, their self-definition, which is deeper. And I think that... Um, it's no different than anybody else's self-definition. We can't just take people who've experienced trauma and set them aside and say, oh, well, they have this much stronger negative or distorted self-definition. No, we all have a distorted self-definition about who we are. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's endemic to the human condition. Mm -hmm. And so what I... CLSE is so profoundly great at is continually inviting the direct experience of what actually is. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There's nothing better than that, than SE. And that is ultimately the actual way to be able to transform a person's self-grasping at distorted narratives of who they are. Awareness or witness, or whatever you want to call it. It's called a lot of different things depending on who you train in SEU with. So whatever you want to call it, awareness itself is the refuge. And the body is the arbiter of that refuge. There is no better arbiter than the body because even if the body is traumatized, the five senses are not traumatized. The five senses could be directed outward to actual direct phenomena. Mm-hmm. And often with people who are very traumatized, a lot of SE in the beginning is orienting, yeah. <laughs> direct attention outward, knowing the way things actually are, and gaining that safety in the nature of experience, of actual experience, so that when a person directs oneself into the body to work on the trauma body, it's safe. There's a container there. There's a foundation there for recognizing what is and isn't true. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes perfect sense. That makes perfect sense. So, so, um, so you know, we're talking about the, in a way, therapy as a practice of um, that uh, embodied experience of yes. um, recognizing what is and what is not true. And how yeah. our mind, you know, constructs reality and distorts reality. Yeah. 
But yeah. in a way, thinking of therapy as a practice, you know, as you're describing it. Yes, I think that's a beautiful way to frame it, especially since my goal always when I work with patients is they're only with me for an hour a week. So my goal is to be able to give them skill, actual skills, so that they can do this work themselves, this, this arriving, awareness, presence, discernment. They mm-hmm. can do this for themselves, in their lives, in the moment. Mm-hmm. That's liberation. Yeah. So that sounds like a beautiful place to end. I just wonder, does it feel right for you, or would you want to add something? Um, well, actually, what I would like to add is I feel very gratified about the work you're doing, because I do think that there are parallels between the work that we do, that we each do, and I think it's um, very powerful for the SE community to be able to have this intersection of um, a very deep and old and profound philosophy of mind come into the SE community. Mm-hmm. It's already sort of there underground, and you know, Peter. <laughs> Peter's taken a lot from Buddhist psychology and Buddhist philosophy. Uh, Steve, same thing. I, it's there, and yet it's not directly talked about. So I actually think it's wonderful if this conversation can be more um, open and that the meeting happens. This recording is part of the Somatic Mindfulness and Relational Psychotherapy podcast. See the website, relationalimplicit.com.